This is a Willits Point Shea Stadium bound 7 express train. The next and last stop is Willits Point Shea Stadium. it is the subway to shea podcast anthony rivera here with you discussing all the news and happenings surrounding that team from queens the new york mets you can follow the show on twitter at subway to shea listen subscribe to the show on anchor.fm apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, radio public breaker and pocket cast turn on those notifications and never miss an episode of subway to shea and also please take a few minutes to write me a review let me know what you think of the show rate the show give me five stars if you like the show because that only boosts my rating in baseball and mets podcast so please review rate let me know what you think utter chef 19 1998 says, I absolutely love the Mets, and I absolutely love this podcast. Would love a live stream of this podcast one day. Keep up the good work, and let's go Mets. Well, Utter Chef 1998, I'm hoping to do some live streams eventually on YouTube, but mostly you can catch me on Instagram. I didn't mention that at the top of the show, but at Subway to Shea. I mean, it's easy as that. And I will be trying my best to do a little more live streams. Definitely want to put out some videos whenever a big news happens or, you know, post-game recap. I'm going to try my best to get those videos out there to you. But hopefully soon, live stream will be coming. So tune in every week, Subway to Shea, and I will keep you updated on that situation. Reekin Havoc 1970 says, I'm a Yankee fan, but also a huge MLB fan. Anthony Rivera and his Subway to Shea podcast is amazing. Anthony is a natural in all facets from his interviews to his baseball knowledge to just being a fan of baseball. Congrats, Anthony. Thank you, Reekin Havoc 1970. Like I said, you know, I'm not a reporter. I am not a statistician. I'm just a fan of the game and a fan of this team. So I'm going to pour out my opinions and my thoughts every week for you. And I'll have guests on every week or every so often. And, you know, we're going to do our best to make this show better. So when you rate and review the show, it only helps me out. I want to know what you like about the show. I also want to know what you dislike about the show because I want to make this show better for you guys and gals. So let me know what your thoughts are. Rate and review, I would really, really appreciate it. You can also find Subway to Shea on YouTube. This podcast is now available every Thursday on the HSP Network. Catch me alongside new podcasts like The Bullpen with DA, Third Floor Lounge, which covers the NFL and NBA, and Sus Talk. Just search High Spot Podcast on YouTube or youtube.com slash High Spot Podcast and make sure you subscribe today. Now, joining me shortly is someone that I followed for a very long time. 
one of the legends of the Mets blogosphere. Michael Barron, he's written for MLB, SNY, he's covered the Mets for a while, and just like with Matt Cerrone, these two guys I've been following for a long time, and I'm happy that he's joining us today to break down opening day, preview the season, and it's going to be a fun interview, so stay tuned. But first off, we need to get into this Francisco Lindor contract extension. Now, this past weekend, Francisco Lindor and Steve Cohen broke bread, had dinner in an Italian restaurant. Cohen had the ravioli. Lindor had his chicken parm. And then on Monday, the Mets offered a 10-year, $325 million contract, according to Andy Martino of SNY. Now, at the time, it was thought that that was going to be their final offer. And then Lindor's camp countered with 12 years, $385 million. Million. That was according to Tim Healy of Newsday. Now, for a comparison, Carlos Correa just got offered $205 million from the Astros. He will also be a free agent at the end of the season when the free agency of shortstops is coming with Correa, Lindor, Seager, Baez, Story. It's a big free agent class for shortstops. So, my initial thoughts here on this whole contract issue, because as we're recording right now, at this moment, no deal has been made. So, if you're listening to this, know that no deal between Lindor and the Mets have been confirmed yet. But we still have another day to see until opening day if he signs a deal. My initial thoughts, Cohen takes Lindor out for a nice Italian dinner, and this is how he repays him? I'm just joking, guys. But real thoughts. Could you imagine walking into City Field to a crowd that saw you reject the highest contract offered in Mets history? Now, David Wright, not comparing the two players together, but at the time, David Wright was offered the highest that any Met has ever been offered, $138 million. This is twice that amount. Twice. So it'd be interesting to see... If he declines the contract or if they can't come together and agree on something, are the fans going to accept him? Are they going to reject him? I mean, right now, people are antsy. Will they boo him because he didn't sign or will they cheer him to try to convince him to stay? That is the big question. You know, declining this deal with Seager, Story, Baez, and Correa hitting free agency, it's a huge risk. Francisco Lindor. If he goes that route, I really, truly hope that it works out for him because there's a possibility that he could lose money here. Now, my personal opinion is that at the end of the day, by opening day, by first pitch, that both camps, the Mets and Francisco Lindor and his agents, will meet at the middle. Maybe 11 years, 350 or 375 is where I could see this going. But it seems like Lindor wants stability, not just the money portion, but in years, this deal, he'll retire as a Met. So that's where we're at with Francisco Lindor. And I'll repeat, at the recording of this episode today, there's been no deal. But if a deal does break, I will hop on Instagram, at Subway to Shea, hopefully you're following me there, and we will discuss this. But I do think a deal gets done. I'm going to say 11 years, either 350 or 375, 
and then we move on from there into baseball. But joining me now on the Subway to Shape podcast is Michael Barron. Michael has written for SNY and MLB. He's covered the Mets for a very long time, and it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast today. Michael, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. All right, before we preview the 2021 season and opening day, we got to address the contract negotiations for Francisco Lindor. <laughs> Obviously, that's the big talk of the last, I want to say, 48 to 72 hours. What do you make of it? And do you think they'll come to an agreement before opening day? Yes, I do. I And, and everyone I talked to, I've talked to today agrees that, I, I don't know if they agree that a deal will happen, but they agree that at this stage of the game, you know, given where they are in the negotiation, that a deal should happen and a deal can't not happen. You know, that's those are the words that you know a lot of people I've talked to anyway have you know have used. And I think it's relevant. I mean, my take is they've really agreed on the money, right? I mean, what the Mets proposed versus what the player proposed are it's it's when you do the math, it's all the same money. It's the same thirty two and a half million. The difference is the term of each proposal. So um I feel like they're past the money part. They both agree like this is what this is what the player is worth and now it's a matter of, of you know how long the contract is going to be and i feel like you know, you're past the 300 million mark which i know is hard for people like us to wrap our heads around but you know once you're talking about you know this kind of money you're almost beyond a point of no return where you have to figure out a way to come to terms and from both sides i mean there's a lot at stake i think there's more at stake for the player for lindor than there is for the mets i think the mets actually hold quite a bit of leverage with all this but I think, you know, by offering 10 and 325, they've shown a commitment to signing the player. I, I don't think they're half-assing or low-balling Francisco Lindor in any way, shape, or form. And they're dead on serious. And, they're, you know, if they're willing to spend $325 million, they're showing a commitment to building a championship roster and retaining the player um, and preventing him going free. So um, I do think it's going to happen. I think it needs to happen. And I think for Francisco Lindor, it needs to happen because, like I said, there's a lot of stake. There's a lot of risk, a lot of risk for him if he doesn't take this amount of money. First, it's just, it takes a lot of guts and balls, if you will to leave 325 or more on the table you know but also you know if he doesn't take it you know he's risking he, he you know he's he's saying you know I'm going to be this good in a year. I'm not going to get hurt. And the potential work stoppage is not going to affect my negotiating power or my value, you know, depending on what that CBA says. So, you know, I, I think that's that's an awfully big risk for him to take if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't take this deal. So I do think, you know, it's mutually beneficial and eventually it will happen over the next 24 to 36 hours. Yeah, and I felt that after, you know, the Mets gave their offer and then Lindor countered, I felt like they're just at some point going to meet somewhere in the middle. Oh, yeah. I think maybe 11 years, either 350, 375. But I, I think that they're, like you said, it's already kind of almost, you know, done in with the numbers for sure. Yeah, and, and look, it's not as if Lindor countered with something like insane. It's not like he said, well, no, it's going to be 10 years or 25, you know, because I think if he had done that he would be expressing his desire to go to free agency right mm -hmm. um, and that's the other thing like is you know given the the economics of the game right now the expiring cpa cba and a potential work stoppage you know you know after that happens you know like is he going to do better than this on the open market 
in a year, assuming all goes well and he has a big year, you know, how much is he buying? You know, at once he's at, at 10 and 325, could he buy? Is it worth the risk for like 8% more, you know, over 10 years? And like, if I'm his agent, I'm saying no. I mean, I know that, you know, you, know, you want to get the most amount of money. That's the need. That's, that's, that's business for anybody. You want to maximize your value and I get it. But, you know, when it comes to risk over, you know, five or 6%, I mean, like in my industry, I'm not willing to take it. Why would he be willing to take it? So I just can't see this not getting done as a result. Like, I just think that that's, like I said, how do, how can he leave all that money on the table for at most another eight ten percent? Like it's just it wouldn't make a lot of a lot of business sense. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, and basically it's it's really just come down to the two extra years. Obviously, this would kind of mean he kind of retires with the team. Seems like he just wants a more stability when it comes to where he's going to be more than I guess the money, which it, it does seem like a lot. But when you compare the ten years to the twelve years, it kind of averages out annually the same. Yeah, I mean, it, it lowers the overall value of the contract if he's going to, if it's just the same dollars over a longer period of time. But, you know, it just doesn't make it, it, it would be unbelievable if he, if, if they couldn't come to terms, you know, based on where they're at. You know, if, the, if they were 100 million apart or, you know, they were, it was seven years versus 11 years or whatever it was, then you could see it maybe not working out. But they're two years and the same dollars apart. So how can it, like I, I can't see Steve Cohen, you know, doing saying what he's saying on Twitter, <laughs> without some degree of confidence that eventually this is going to come to come come to fruition. I just can't see it. Like he's he he's gotten to this point in his career and life, and you know he's worth fourteen billion dollars for a reason. He knows what he's doing. He knows when he's doing this on Twitter in front of two hundred thousand followers. Like you have to have you have to believe that. He has some savviness behind it. So I know a lot of people are cynical, but this, these aren't the same old Mets, you know. Um, so I would just be a little bit more patient if I were folks, you know, out there who are afraid this isn't going to happen. Yeah, I think the patience is the key. We're, it's still not opening day yet, so I, I still think, like you said, this is going to get done. Uh, moving on yeah. for the season itself, there, there's been no confirmations yet so far on how this you know, roster is going to pan out, but we kind of know, um, Anthony DeComo kind of wrote the other day, a little breakdown of the roster and l let's start with the offense and, and the position players. Cause this is probably their biggest strength, probably one of their best lineups. I would think since around maybe 2005, 2006, you got Pete Alonzo, McNeil, Lindor, JD Davis, McCann, you know, rounding out that infield and then the outfield, Dom Smith, uh, Brandon Nimmo and Michael Conforto. What do you make of this strength of this, this lineup? Yeah, I mean, I generally agree with your assessment. I think it's the best opening day lineup anyway that they've had since say 2006 i want to i'd probably give the nod to that 2006 lineup just because i think it was a little bit more balanced left left to right but i would say all in all i mean this is this team's gonna hit and they're gonna score a lot of runs i mean I, you saw that last year once they you know kind of broke out of that you know runners in scoring position problem they had um you know the, what this line was capable of and that was before they had Lindor in there and I think you'll get a bounce back season from J.D. Davis it's going to be you know it's going to be an exciting lineup I think the questions lie in their bullpen and certainly out of the gate with their rotation it's not deep beyond um, number three um, and that's not a knock on David Peterson but there aren't a lot of innings under his belt to give you you know to really project out what he's going to do I, I think he's going to be you know pretty good but you know he's 
he's still a question mark, and that's just being fair. So, and of course, the bullpen is you know it's typical hot mess right now coming you know uh, coming out of the gate. So I think a lot of, when it, I, it's, I was talking, I forgot who I was talking to earlier about the Mets bullpen, but I, I was saying you know if Edwin Diaz is the least of your problems, you, you know you got a problem. <laughs> yes. so, and look, Edwin Diaz was real good last year, but you know it's he was still he still had his share of problems nonetheless. So I am actually somewhat encouraged by what Dylan Batanzas showed you know his last couple of outings. I know he's not what he was, but what I was encouraged by was his ability to get outs with his off with off speed, you know, which is not something you're accustomed to seeing with him. And look, the Mets have to make the most of that situation for as long as they can, you know, for as long as they have to. And that may be until, you know, Seth Lugo comes back, but you're still asking for six to eight weeks of um, credible pitching from Dylan Batances. And you're asking, you know, somehow Robert Selman made this team. So, you know, you're going to be asking for some, you know, long relief efforts from him, you know, to bridge those gaps, especially with, you know, the fourth and fifth spots in the rotation being the question marks that they are. So it's still nonetheless a weak spot. It's a problem right now. Seth Lugo makes them better, but, you know, I think we all agreed that even when everybody was healthy, um, they still need another reliever, particularly on the left side, which makes it surprising. They were so quick on the trigger with, you know, Stephen Tarpley and Jerry Blevins is going to be on the at the alternate site. You know, they're lacking left-handed presence. And a lot of people say, well, you know, with a three-batter rule, it doesn't matter. And I just don't agree, especially when your rotation is short and you can only expect five or six innings from the fourth and fifth spot anyway. That means you need to deal with Bryce Harper at least twice with your bullpen. And if you only have one left-handed reliever, you can only neutralize him once. And if you choose to neutralize him in the sixth or seventh inning, I mean, you can't neutralize him in the ninth inning in a close game. So it does matter. It matters a lot. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. I don't see um, this front office standing pat. I think they're going to maneuver this roster a lot. They're going to bring Jerry Blevins in and out. They're going to bring Tarpley in and out. And um, they're probably going to shop for an upgrade too. But, um, you know, these games count early too. And I just don't, you know, I hate to say they need to be patient, but, you know, because I don't think they can afford to be that patient with the bullpen right now. Yeah, especially not in the NL East, which is going to be very tough. One guy that I thought should have gotten some consideration, he's going to be a part of the taxi squad, uh, Trevor Hildenberger, the side Mm -hmm. armor. I'm just surprised that... You know, him and Tarpley didn't get as big as a look and also very surprised that they let go of Mike Montgomery, who was great all spring, had one bad start at the end. And then they go to Robert Gazelman. Obviously, uh, Rojas has said it's because he could go multiple innings. But are, are those good multiple innings that we're going to get? Because I feel like we kind of know what Robert Gazelman is after really having a, a good 2016. He's kind of been just mediocre for me. And we have enough well, of that. You know, with yeah. Batanzas and Familia, we, we, we can't be sure what Miguel Castro is going to bring to the team. So I'm just surprised yeah, that they went Castro. that way. Well, yeah. And I mean, look, I, I think if Robert Selma wasn't making $1.3 million through arbitration, he might not, we might not be having this discussion right now, right? Because I think it was more, it was more what you saw in camp and I know it's camp. But it was more of the same with a slider that's, I'm sorry, a sinker that sits on a flat plane and doesn't sink. And he was getting beat around, especially at the end. And what 
what you see at the end of camp always matters more than what you see at the beginning because, you know, the pitchers are trying to ramp up and really trying to sharpen themselves and the major league hitters are staying in the game longer, you know, it's, so it's not just about the pitchers building up pitch counts, you know, at some point they have to be able to get outs and, you know, because someone's coming in the sixth and seventh inning of a late spring training game and he's facing major league hitters and not getting him out. Like, I don't care whether, I don't care if it counts or not. Like that's a problem if he's not getting him out and he wasn't getting him out. Whereas, you know, Batances was, you know, Batances was getting getting major league hitters out mm-hmm. during his outings over the last weekend. You know, you could easily argue that that stuff may not play over over a longer period of time with Batances, and I and I dig that. I totally get it. But right now, you got to look for something with both Gaselman and Batances, and I think you saw more from Batances just in terms of the results than you do with Gaselman. But look, Gaselman, you know, like I said, he earns one point three million dollars a year, and that and he's on the forty man roster, and that plays. You know, so um, that's probably that's a big reason why he made the team. And to your point about Montgomery, I, I can only assume that he got really he got creamed in his last outing. But I can only assume they, they decided that he wasn't going to make the team. and He just asked for his release. I don't I can't imagine, you know, given the current state of the bullpen and their depth on the left side that they would just, you know, decide to cut him. So there's usually more than meets the eye. You know, when it comes to these kind these roster decisions. But, you know, you brought up a good point about Hildenberger. They were quick on the trigger with him early in camp to send him to the minor league side. So um, I'm glad he's on the taxi squad. I think that means they think that he can get people out. But you kind of wonder why he's not on the team and Robert Zellman is, right? So we'll just have to see how, how this all plays out. And you know, the Mets also unveiled the opener, I guess, if that that's the best term to use uh, for the first yeah. time at the end of spring with using uh, Jacob Barnes leading to Joey Lucchese. And it kind of worked. Do you think that's something that they'll utilize a lot throughout this season? That's a good question. I don't think so. I don't think, you know, I think about the Rays bullpen when it comes to using openers and you know they have you know sh- a lot of different kinds of short arms that can that can do that right the Mets don't really have that in their bullpen I don't think their bullpen is of that kind of quality I don't think it's deep enough I don't think they have the kind of flexibility to to do that on you know every five days or even every 10 days I think they can do it in an emergency but I don't think you're going to see it a whole lot I think they tried it I think it worked for an hour or two and you know at least they know you know they can send you know they can go inning to inning with some of these guys but like I said I just don't think the bullpen is equipped to to do this you know for real and I think they're just going to need Joey Lucchese to do more of what he was doing in camp and be that fifth starter until they get Carlos Carrasco back and or Noah Syndergaard um, which you know you hope that they get Carrasco back by Memorial Day and you know I, Noah Syndergaard hopefully by June 15th if not the all-star break you know and that's when the Mets have a good problem right now they don't have a good problem they have a concerning problem so they're going to be rolling the dice, and I think you're going to see them skip that fifth spot a lot when they can. I think you're going to see, you know, the opener at times. I think you're going to see kind of like a little bit of a, a musical chairs there until they can get Carrasco back, which what is it's about, call it seven, eight, nine turns through the rotation. So we'll just have to see. I know Mets Twitter was up in arms about, you know, doing this opener thing, but I, I can assure you, like, you won't see this during a DeGrom start. You won't see it no. during Stroman, none of, you know, Peterson. You you know, it's well, probably just a once in a while thing if they ever decide to do it. You know, that's a good a good question. And I only say that because of last year and the fact that like nobody threw any innings last year, especially. And you look at guys like David Peterson, who has how many innings did he throw last year? Let's call it 60 innings, right? Let's call it 50 innings just because I'm, I'm not looking. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that's he was he still needs to build up his innings count. And when you take that and couple that with the fact that you could have stamina issues with him and you can have certainly with Taiwan Walker, you know, who hasn't pitched a whole lot in the last three or four years, you could see them going to, you know, spot starters or stretching out the rotation of to six people, you know, quite a bit because it's easier said than done with those guys, you know, and then you have the fifth starter problem. So, you know, they have these, these, this juggling act that they're going to have to employ in order to get to Carlos Carrasco and Noah Syndergaard. And it's not going to be easy. It's not just, okay, well, you go to a six-man rotation or you spot start or you use the opener here, you know, because that all has implications on how you use the bullpen on that given on, on any given day and on consecutive. So it's I don't know how they're going to manage it, and I quite honestly I don't think they know how they're going to manage it yet. I think they're going to have to feel their way through it. An area where I feel that they really kind of bolstered their players was in the bench. I feel that it's very deep. Yeah. I, I don't remember the last time it was this deep with uh, Tomas Nito, Luis Guillorme, VR, Pilar, and Alberto Moore Jr. I, I think this is a really good bench for this team. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think they've had a lot of in the past anyway one-dimensional kind of players on you know on their bench and you know i think now they have guys who you can plug in there and have them start for a few days or a week and you can feel comfortable with that i mean you take Luis guillorme who to me has grown as much as anybody in the league you know just in terms of his overall game and his maturity at the plate you know he's certainly a defensive whiz out there i know he had a little bit of a hiccup earlier this week where he was juggling the ball around but you know that happens but you know he's a guy who can play three positions you know he's got he's got a great attitude and a great you know a great approach and his like i said his approach at the plate has matured he's not going to hit 350 he's not going to hit 300 but you don't want him to be an automatic out either which i think for a long period of time anyway that was the case and it's prevented him from becoming a starter but now you know you look at him you can say you know what this guy can hit enough to start for an extended period of time and i think that's a good thing and they have a lot of guys like that i mean jonathan vr has you know a track record i mean he's recently hit for the cycle in the last couple of years i know that can be an aberration but you know he's got power he's got speed he can hit the ball to all fields you know so that that's an asset i mean jd davis is you know he i know he's a starter right now but you know he could see himself in a part-time role you know over a longer period of time but you know what he can do with the plate so you know and you mentioned almora who you know has got pop and he's a defensive whiz out in center field so you know you look at him maybe as a late game replacement right now for brandon nimmo you know to you know shore up the defense for you know this fly ball bullpen they have so um, you know, I agree with you. I think it's it's the lineup isn't a problem. You know, the 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 offense isn't a problem. The defense and the bullpen specifically are the problems. And we'll just have to see how it you know how it all shakes out for them. And you know, hopefully, you catch lightning in a bottle with some of these guys. And you know, these you know, Dylan Batances you know has a little bit left in the tank for them. Once again, I'm with Michael Barron. You've seen his work on the Mets on SNY and MLB. Opening day Thursday, Mets against the Washington Nationals. Sadly, nationally televised game on ESPN, so we kind of have to deal with their broadcast. Uh, first pitch at 7.09. DeGrom against Scherzer. Again, rematch from 2019. I think DeGrom struck out 10 in a Mets uh, 2-0 victory. This is his third straight opening day, joining Seaver, Doc Gooden, Santana, the only Mets to make three or more starting pitchers. Uh, Michael Jake is pitching on another stratosphere right now. Is that correct to say? Like, he's just unbelievable. Well, you know, you're right. And I think, you know, we've shifted. I think the discussion is 
slowly shifting from Jacob deGrom being the best pitcher in baseball to what are his Cooperstown credentials right now, which is a hell of a discussion to be having, you know, considering, you know, six years ago, he was the reliever and Rafael, or seven years ago, he was the reliever and Rafael Montero was the starter, you know, over the longer period of time, right? You remember that discussion? And then he came up and pitched that gem against the Yankees and that was it. You know, that was it. Like, he hasn't looked back. And look, he's a super guy too, you know, on top of it. Like, he's a humble um, grounded individual who, you know, isn't, you know, looking to, you know, walk that red carpet, so to speak. You know, he just wants to go out there and do his job, you know, very blue collar like. And I think you can appreciate that about him, too. So um, I think one of the things that DeGrom has going for him is that he didn't pitch a whole lot when he was younger. And so he's got a lot of mileage left in that arm. You know, he's 30, 31, 32, whatever he is, but he's probably got the body of someone who's 27, 28, 29. And that's, that matters, you know, um, and he's getting better and he's getting stronger. And I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, eventually we all hit that wall. You know, believe me, I know that firsthand. But, um, you know, I, he reminds me his career is, I know he doesn't have the no hitters, but his career seems to run parallel to that of Sandy Koufax because, you know, I think the difference is, you know, Koufax struggled early in his career and DeGrom out of the gate was awesome. But DeGrom also started late, you know, so mm-hmm. he might be one of those guys who puts up, you know, eight, nine years of, you know, unreal pitching and goes to Cooperstown. I mean, I, he's still, you know, I, I think another Cy Young award would seal that deal and you can't ever guarantee that. But I also think it's relevant that, you know, he finishes in the top three every year when he doesn't. So, you know, and last year was a crock anyway, you know, so that wasn't, you know, you have to believe over 162 with the way he was pitching in general, like he was a sign, you know, he, he was certainly on track to win the Cy Young award. I mean, everybody has a bad outing, right. Yep. And he had a, one bad outing and that changed everything. So, you know, like I said, I think it's shifting. You know, we all know he's the best pitcher in baseball. We all know it's probably not very close. And so now it's a matter of, can he do this for another three seasons and print a ticket to Cooperstown? I mean, we'll see. I mean, this is, uh, that's a fun discussion to have, I'll tell you that. Well, I hope they can get him some wins. I know it's not the biggest stat right now, but, you know, a lot of the pitchers in Cooperstown, over 150, 200, 300 wins, I I don't think he'll get that far because, you know, the offense has not been great for him. But, you know, like you said, winning another Cy Young or, or two or staying in the top three and pitching every year, and who knows, the sky's the limit. You know, you said something to me that I've really been thinking a lot about lately. Um, where you said, you know, wins aren't the most important stat. And I think statistically speaking, from the 30,000 foot view, you're right. And the reason for that is because bullpens pitch most of innings six through nine now. So it's, you know, and most games are not blowouts and bullpens turn over leads, especially bad ones. And that's what's hurt to ground. But look, when he was pitching in Little League and in high school and in college at Stetson, you know, you took the mound and you wanted to win the game and you wanted that W next to your name in the box score. And, you know, I know he's not going to make it about himself and say, you know, well, all I want to do is get win. You know, I know he's not going to say that, but it's it's got to be important to him. You want the win. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's the kid in you that, you know, you, you want that W in the box, you know, next to your name. And like I and it's OK, like it's OK to be a little bit selfish. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not a winning, a winning player, but you know, that's the, the kid in you that says, you know what, it does matter because I pitch really well and I'm upset I didn't win the game. There's nothing wrong with saying that if you ask me. 
Yeah, before I let you go, one more question for you. I know sure. you were pretty vocal of this on Twitter, and so was I. The black jerseys, they're back. <laughs> it's a part of me growing up as a Mets fan. I know a lot of fans like just the striped jerseys, and those are my favorite, you know, and I, I love the 86 racing striped jerseys as well. But this was a big part of me growing up. How excited are you for them to return? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jersey guy. You know, I have a student of them for all teams. I, you know, I, I always comment, you know, when I'm watching like the Orioles, for instance, I always say, man, they have that, that orange and black and white, that's sharp. That I, you know, I say that every time I see them, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I think uniforms are important. I think whether they were nice uniform, they teams have worn nice uniforms or not over the course of their history, you know, in the end is a part of their history and a part of the, the the organization's heritage. Now, I, I don't think that means the Mets should bring back their, you know, 1978 crew jerseys with the... <laughs> the piping? You know, the... No, it was... Uh, yeah, it had the piping on the neck and the piping on the sleeve and wear the pillbox hat. No, I don't think they should do that because those aren't the greatest uniforms in the world. But I think if you have a jersey that identify that really helps you identify and connect with the fan base, you know, even if, you know, it's unpopular with a portion of the fan base, I think you have to own that. In fact, I'm looking at an old picture of Joe Torre with like, that uniform <laughs> I was talking about from 78. So my preference for the black jersey was always on the road with, you know, the I thought it was much sharper with the gray pants. And um, New York but, across. Yeah, I thought that was a much better looking uniform than the home blacks with white pants. But look, I mean, I, I'm excited. I, I think the Mets need to do a much better job. And I think they're going to do a much better job of celebrating their history and celebrating their heritage. And the black jerseys are a part of that. You know, they just are. I mean, I remember when I was, you know, they, they released those when I was 18 years old. And I remember how excited I was that they... You know, we're introducing a black jersey. It was a big thing in the late 90s, you know, so I think it'll be nice, you know, to see them a few times. I don't want them to want it to become a regular, a regular occurrence. I think, I guess Pete Alonzo said. The um, Friday night blackout. I, I think that's the perfect yeah, idea. I think, I think that's what you're going to see. And that's fine with me. As long as on the first game they do it, that John Franco, Edgardo <laughs> Alfonso, Mike Piazza and Al Leiter are somehow involved with the ceremonial first pitch. Oh, absolutely. They um, have to be. And hell, uh, throw David Wright in there and Carlos Delgado for that matter, you know? I mean, because, yeah. you know, when I think of that 2006 team, I certainly think of the, the black jerseys. When I think of the 2000 team, the 99 team, what do you think about when you think about the 1999 team? You think about Ventura's home run. Mm -hmm. What jersey is he wearing? The black jersey, you know? So it's important. You know, whether you like it or not, it's important. Yeah, they won the pennant you know, in 2000 in the black jerseys, you know? Yeah, I, well, they did. I remember when Hampton was on the mound, and I think Edmonds flew out to end, end that series, you know? So, um, you know, that, again, like, these are images in your head which are important if, you know, if you're a fan of any team, you know? So, and you know, I, even, I would even argue that, you know, the Yankees should consider – you know, they, they, I don't know if you watched them in spring training, but they have on the road, they have these Navy um, New York jerseys with silver lettering and they're beautiful. They're great. And I'm like, why don't they wear those during the regular season? They're beautiful jerseys, and I think they should consider that. Uh, you know they run a strict ship there in, in the Bronx. No, I get it. I get it. But uh, that doesn't – you know what? You know, traditions sometimes are meant to change. And yep. I think it's okay to – you know, you're going to piss off the traditionalists and the and the, con the conservative Yankee fan and the guy that was around – who was at the Larson Vera – the Larson perfect game, right? But it, you know what? It's 2021. Okay, you, can, you can change a little bit. Yeah, but and it's not even like they're going to be that's every day. a very unpopular position. No, you're right. And it's not like it's going to be every day. I mean, they're going to do it once in a while. It's not even every yeah. Friday. Maybe once a month they'll probably do it uh, for the season. 
season. So I, I, I don't mind. I think you even posted, did you post the 86 away jerseys that you liked? Well, my favorite Met jersey is um, the they, they wore them from, I want to say 82 or 83 through 86. And it was their road gray jersey. And it had the Met script on the front. And that's my favorite jersey of all, the, my favorite all-time jersey with them. There's nothing I like better. And they used them in 2016 in a game against the Cubs at Wrigley. It was turn back the clock day and the Cubs wore their mid-80s jerseys. And I was just like, they need to, they, they somehow need to incorporate the Mets script onto a road jersey because yeah. I think it looks it looks fantastic on the gray. You know, I can talk about uniforms like till the cows come home. By the way. <laughs> yeah, those, those 86 road jerseys. I also, I love the 87 ones. They only did it one year, but the 87 with the New York script i kind of thought that was nice i didn't like the 88 ones which was kind of like yankee style new york but the 87 ones i wish they kept a little longer the 87 ones were very very unpopular and the players didn't like those either if i recall i i I know keith hernandez has talked about those 87s quite a bit and hasn't spoken too positively about them but i mean i think there is some popularity with those jerseys among the fan base and i think you know you could you know if you want to do like a i mean 87 wasn't the greatest year for them for a number of no. reasons but then <laughs> start with dwight gooden but at any rate um i think you can if they want to have a turn back the clock 80s night you know on the road or something they can wear them at home for all i care you know but you know maybe that would work but i don't know they sell a lot of those jerseys so there is some there is they are popular to a degree among the fans i just don't they i can just tell you they weren't popular in 1987 which is why they dumped them for that like you said that yankee new york block with yeah they would have looked a lot better without the white they had white piping on the letters Mm -hmm. and the numbers and i thought they made them look terrible they would have looked a lot better without that white piping well we definitely won't be seeing any of the 93 94 aramets jerseys anytime soon. no 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 definitely (laughs) not although i don't back in 2013 so i can go on and on back in 2013 they did a turn back to clock night at course field and for to celebrate the Rockies' 20th anniversary, and the Mets wore their white pinstripes from 1993 at Coors Field with that the the what is it the uh, the slash under the Mets logo, which yeah. was a terrible terrible jersey with for a terrible team. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, Michael, I appreciate you coming on with us. Let people know where they can reach you on social media and your blog. Well, for now, I would say the best way to connect with me is on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. That's Michael G. Barron. And I would say that's for now. Hopefully that changes over the next little while. But um, that's where that's where I'm at. That's where I've always been. That's, you know, I enjoy that forum. You know, even, you know, if there's some crazy folks out there, you know, I still enjoy being a part of that community. All right, Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I appreciate it. And I hope that we could one day do this again soon. Absolutely. Anytime. All right, Michael, you take care. Have a good one, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. That was Michael Barron, former writer for SNY and MLB. He's covered the Mets for such a long time. He's one of the guys I've always looked up to, him, Matt Cerrone, when it comes to Mets coverage. And it was such a pleasure having him on previewing this season, talking Lindor, and talking DeGrom. You know, every episode I got to talk to the guest about DeGrom. How could you not? How could you not? Now, final thoughts here. Marcus Stroman is set to pitch game two. We already know DeGrom is opening day. Marcus Stroman's going to pitch game two, which also means he's slated for 
opening day at City Field. It's going to be very exciting to see him on the mound this year and see what he could bring to the table. He's very motivated. He's ready to go. And I hope he's successful this season. I hope the whole rotation is successful. The schedule as is for the rotation, DeGrom getting the opening day nod. Then Saturday, Marcus Stroman. Sunday, David Peterson. Then the Mets head to Philadelphia. And on April 5th, it will be Taiwan Walker pitching for the Mets. On the 6th, it will be Jacob DeGrom, who will be on five days rest. On the 7th, we may see an opener or Lucchese or both. And then, like I said, the home opener with Marcus Stroman. Now on a non-related, kind of related Met note, Matt Harvey has made the rotation for the Orioles. And I hope he succeeds in Baltimore. I don't know if he's the number two starter or where he will be slotted in the rotation, but I do want to see Matt Harvey get his pitching career back on track. I know there's a lot of other Met fans that I talked with on Twitter that want to see the same thing. I hope nothing but positive success. You know, he played hard for the Mets. He did. I know Boris kind of got in the way, but he pitched through the playoffs, man. He wasn't really supposed to get through there. And, And Game 5 of the World Series was one of the best pitching performances that I've seen. So, like I said... Nothing but positive vibes sending Matt Harvey's way. I hope he does well. I hope he's able to stay in the rotation. And I'm hoping that he can get his career back on track. Before I let you go, I got to give a shout out to some Mets groups here on Facebook. Because they allow me to go on there and post my podcast every week. And I really appreciate that. And I want to show the love for them that they show for me. So if you could do me a favor, if you're a Mets fan on Facebook, try following these groups out. They bring the conversation every day, always passionate talking about the Mets. Here are the Mets groups to follow if you are on Facebook. Got Mets Country, New York Mets Fans, Mets Junkies, Real Mets Fans, Let's Go Mets, Love My Mets, Amazing Mets Fans, LFGM, Amazing Mets, Mets Fans Anonymous, New York Mets Live, Mets Fan Club, Objective Mets Fans, Die Hard Orange and Blue, True Mets Fan Zone, True Mets Fans, Mets Extremists, Amazing Mets, Amazing Fans, The New York Mets Orange and Blue Nation, Mets Musings, Real New York Mets Fan Page, The Mets Lounge, New York Mets Diehards, Real Met Fans, Met Fans, Hopeful or Hopeless, New York Mets Fans HQ, and Avid New York Met Fans. Follow those groups on Facebook, and I just want to give my thanks to all of them for allowing me to post my podcast every week on their page. Now, as we wrap up the show, please take a few minutes to write me a review. Let me know what you think of the show, what you like, what you don't like. I want to know all of it because I want to make this show better for you. Jay Strupp left me a review. This is a little longer one. I subscribed and will be a regular listener. Bought up some real good points, especially the money and time up so much money in Lindor and Conforto. I like Conforto, but I'm not a huge fan. Prior to last year, I didn't see a lot coming through in the clutch. He's never put up numbers to think he's worthy of $25 million player. I know you're signing partially for the future, but we have others we need to sign too, like Pete and McNeil and Noah. Don't know what other options are out there, but corner outfielders are easy to get them. A guy like McNeil that brings so much to the team and is just a great hitter. Well, 
Jay Strupp, I appreciate you leaving me a review. I appreciate your opinions as well. Everyone's allowed to their opinions. I do disagree with Conforto. I do think he is a clutch player, especially last year. He, I think he was the very clutch last year in 2019. So it's going to be interesting to see where they go with his contract. I wouldn't worry about Pete or McNeil just yet. Noah's more important at the time because he's hitting free agency next year and he's coming back from Tommy John. So it's going to be interesting to see if he returns and if he pitches well, how they try to resign him. But Pete Alonso and Jeff McNeil, I wouldn't worry too much about that right now. That's more down the line. I still think that they could get both Conforto and Noah Syndergaard. I don't know if they can add Stroh. I think you might get two out of the three. But who knows? The Mets still need to figure out if they're going to sign Lindor or not. So we'll see. But Jay Stroop, I thank you for the review. I appreciate it. So guys, leave me a review. Rate the show. Help me climb the rankings up in the baseball podcast and Mets podcast world. You can follow the show on Twitter at Subway to Shea. Listen and subscribe to the show on Anchor.fm, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, and Pocket Cast. Turn on those notifications. Never miss an episode of Subway to Shea. You can also find Subway to Shea on YouTube. This podcast is now available every Thursday on the HSP Network. Catch me alongside new podcasts like The Bullpen with DA, The Third Floor Lounge, which covers the NFL and NBA, and Sus Talk. Just search High Spot Podcast on YouTube or youtube.com slash High Spot Podcast and make sure to subscribe today. And my four big words that I like to say, listen, subscribe, share, and review. Guys, have a great week. Enjoy opening day and opening day weekend. And as always... Let's go Mets.